Okay. Uh, good morning. Before I start with um, today's lecture, please note that um, I've been asked to hand out to all of you uh, um, a feedback questionnaire uh, in which you're asked to assess the lectures this term. Um, I say this now so that you can mentally prepare for it, um, and I'll set aside a couple of minutes towards the end of the lecture uh, for you to fill in uh, the forms. So uh, let me start with um, today's lecture, which is the last in the serious introduction to the politics and government of Germany. And the topic today is the process and effects of German unification, i.e. we're dealing with primarily the last 16 to 17 years. The events of 1989 and 1990, which ended 45 years of a divided Germany and a divided Europe, are without doubt some of the most remarkable in modern history. They end a period that began in 1945, after the Second World War, and they have recast the political landscape in Europe and changed the dynamics of world politics. This all happened in your lifetime, but you probably don't have very clear memories of it. So let me start by taking you back to the situation as it was before 1989 and in 1989 uh, with the help of a few pictures and talk you to some, uh, through some key events. Let me see. Here we go. When the Berlin Wall was erected uh, on the 13th of August in of 1961, it cut West Berliners off from entering East Berlin. It also hindered about 60,000 East Berlin commuters to get to their work in the West. As well as an obstacle, it also soon proved to be a deadly border. On the 17th of August 1962, the first victim to die was one Peter Fechter, aged 18, who was shot from the East, collapsed in the no man's land, and slowly bled to death as West, as West Berlin guards did not dare to help him. Over the next 18 years, there were approximately 100 deaths on the wall. The last one was 20-year-old Chris Geffroy in February 1989. The wall was 160 kilometers long, that's about 100 miles, and a very complex system. First, there was a four-meter-high wall, then a lit control area, the so-called strip of death, where shooting would occur without warning, then a trench to avoid breakthrough with cars, then a street for East German patrol, ca uh, pat patrol cars, then wa watchtowers, then another wall. It cuts straight across about 200 streets, of which about 100 led to West Berlin and um, 100 to the GDR. Today, these streets are reconnected, and the former position of the wall has to be marked with big nails in the street, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell. In the late 1980s, inspired by Gorbachev and his reforms, liberalizations took place in the Soviet Union, in Poland, and in Hungary, but there was no movement in the GDR and none in prospect. To escape the situation in the GDR, many East Germans fled to um, Federal Republic embassies abroad. 
Then limitations were imposed on travel even in the communist bloc. These Germans were barred from going to Poland and Hungary after Hungary had dismantled border protection on the Austrian border in May 1989. As a consequence, Czechoslovakia remained the only outlet. In September 1989, more than 4,000 GDR citizens fled into the West German Prague embassy. Conditions became unbearable, as you can see on the picture, over the course of several weeks. Eventually, they were allowed to emigrate to West Germany. If you go to the German embassy in Prague today, you find in the garden a Trabi statue to remember the episode, which carries highly emotionally charged memories for many Germans in both East and West. Only six weeks after this, on the 9th of November 1989, Günther Schabowski, the East Berlin Communist Party head and GDR government spokesman, announced that the border is now open for private travel abroad. After initial confusion, ecstasy took hold of Berlin and there were huge celebrations throughout the night in the center of West Berlin. On the 12th of November, the border crossing at Potsdamer Platz was opened and on the 22nd of December, the Brandenburg Gate is opened. Wall packers chipped away at the wall and sold pieces as souvenirs. On the 1st of July, 1990, economic currency and social union between the GDR and the Federal Republic came into force, which also meant free travel between both parts of Berlin. The wall almost disappeared in the following months and the remaining parts had to be protected to keep memory alive. Let me show you a film clip uh, from that time. It is from the BBC. So much just to, for those of you who've been to Berlin, to make it clear to you that within your lifetime, 
things were very, very different. Let me start uh, the lecture proper now with a few remarks. The first concer concerns the striking contrast between the emotionality of the 89-90 uh, period and the so often conflicting relations between East and West Germans today. Uh, some 17 years ago, as you could see, the sense of excitement which followed the opening of the Berlin Wall and the border between the Federal Republic and the GDR was tremendous. It was almost indescribable. Uh, like it is said of Americans and the assassination of President Kennedy, all Germans old enough probably remember uh, where they were when they heard of this unexpected and very electrifying event. There were celebrations in Berlin all through the night. Few people slept through that night, and it is said that some who already had gone to bed uh, took to the streets in their pajamas to, to see the fact for themselves. In the following weeks, as the border was opened along its full length, each new opening was a cause for local celebration. East Germans driving into West Germany were welcomed in the local fashion with beer and bratwurst, and the West Germans crossing into the East experienced the same treatment. Most West Germans probably remember uh, the first trubby they saw in their hometowns as East Germans ventured into unknown territory in their tiny cars now that they had no longer to be confined to the territory of the German Democratic Republic. The excitement of back then has, or quickly actually, gave way to normality and, as I said, sometimes strained relations. But while today's conflicts mainly center around material issues, um, and are often about transfers from the West to the East, it's worth remembering just how much of an achievement um, unification was because so many people profited from it in terms of freedom and increased life chances, which is something that today is often forgotten and just taken uh, for normal. The second remark is to firmly keep in mind the, that the events of 1989 and 1990 were not inevitable. As the noted American journalist and commentator Elizabeth Pond has put it, and I quote, there is a tendency in hindsight to reinterpret the astonishing events of 1989 and 90 as inevitable. A kind of sociological determinism has set in. Yet that approach forgets the vertiginous split-second choices that had to be made time and again by both governments and individuals. The minute-by-minute -minute decisions not to use violence by 70,000 demonstrators and perhaps 8,000 security forces in Leipzig on the evening of October 9, 1989, were far from predestined. It required courage for the marchers to go out that evening and maintain nonviolent discipline. A significant number of them really feared that they might get killed. Even some of the people most closely involved with the events, such as the former Soviet minister, uh, foreign minister Eduard Shevardnadze, have in retrospect marveled that the sometimes chaotic circumstances and events did not lead to a bloodbath or at least to a new phase of the Cold War. It is thus worth keeping in mind that although the outcome of unification and the demise of communism as an important force and the restructuring of Europe may seem preordained and inevitable from today, it certainly was not. Indeed, it was not at all expected at the time. Even after the wall had come down, many observers still saw German unification as a process of years at best, and certainly not months. The lesson here is not to judge 
the past from the present. As the noted English historian Herbert Butterfield has reminded us, that can lead us, and I quote him, to impose a certain form upon the whole historical story and to produce a scheme of general history which is bound to converge beautifully upon the present. And the last remark concerns the use of the word unification and not reunification. This is a conscious choice of words as the Germany that was unified had never before existed in that form, uh, both territorially and politically. Reunification seems to insinuate a continuity which simply does not exist in German history and certainly not in behavior. Now, how did we get to 1989? Let me first focus on the international aspect before going on to give you the perspective of German domestic politics. Of course, the two spheres are intertwined and decisions on both levels were dependent on each other. Still, for analytical purposes, I think it's best to keep them apart. So let me start with the international side of the story. You will remember from my lecture in third week that Germany surrendered unconditionally to the Allies in 1945. As a result, although two different German states, the Federal Republic and the German Democratic Republic, emerged after that, the four powers, i.e. the United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the French Republic, retained supreme authority over matters concerning Germany as a whole. So, although the two German states for decades were respected and active members of the respective uh, Eastern and Western military alliances, NATO and the Warsaw Pact, they were not fully sovereign, which meant that inevitably German unification could not proceed without the consent of the former World War II allies. It is also important to remember that these residual rights were not thought to be of any real significance anymore, at least in terms of practical policy. The division of Germany was absolutely central for the bipolar world order that had emerged after 1948. The two highly armed blocs that confronted each other both had a nuclear capacity to kill each other many times over. Nobody, it is fair to say, thought for many decades that this division could be overcome, and as a result, nobody thought that German unification was a real political possibility or threat. As a consequence, many West European politicians found it easy to support German unification in principle, since it seemed so utterly unlikely. I have here for you a couple of memorable quotations. They're also on the handout. One is by former British Prime Minister Edward Heath, who probably spoke for many in 1989 when he said, and I quote, naturally we expressed our support of German reunification because we knew it would never happen. This feeling of stability was shared by the East German leader, as you can see here, uh, and und uh, undoubtedly similar were the feelings of the French author François Mauriac, who said that he loved Germany so much he hoped there would always be two of them. West German politicians, along with most of their allies, had more or less ignored the East German state until the end of the 1960s. After that, led by humanitarian desire to improve the lot of their fellow Germans, the social liberal coalition under Willy Brandt embarked on Ostpolitik, under the guiding principle of change through rapprochement, or in German, Wandel durch Annäherung. Um, 
following the imperatives of detente, um, this policy hoped to open up communist East Germany to some extent. But real change only swept through the Eastern Bloc after the mid-1980s with the rise to power of Mikhail Gorbachev as Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. His new ideas about perestroika, the new thinking, turned many of the fundamental principles of the communist countries upside down. They were most clearly expressed in his speech to the United Nations General Assembly in December 1988, when he extended the validity of the principle of non-interference to other states' affairs for the first time to members of the communist camp, which was a radical change over the policy that had led to military interventions in the past, from Hungary in 1956 to Czechoslovakia in 1968, with a threat ever present to any communist country that would deviate <coughs> from orthodoxy. Now that orthodoxy no longer existed, and as countries from Hungary to Poland started experimenting, East Germans demanded change and reforms as well. As a result, their geriatric leader, Erich Honecker, who was only the second head of state since the Republic's founding in 1949 and who had been in power since 1971 and as recently as 1989, as you could see, can see here, declared that the Berlin Wall would still be standing in a hundred years' time. Erich Honecker was forced to resign and was replaced by his longtime chosen heir, Egon Krenz. Barely three weeks later, on the 9th of November 1989, the wall came down. I can't go into the details of the dynamics both that led to this change and that unfolded afterwards here. If you're interested, uh, I recommend to you the book by David Childs, uh, by David Child, which you find on the handout. Um, and let me now turn to the other aspect of German unification, namely the international aspect. The most amazing aspect about German unification, if you look at it from the viewpoint of the international system, is undoubtedly that it came about at all, because there were so many actors on the international scene who were opposed to it. Still it happened, and it is certainly worth asking how that could be the case. Let us have a look at the actors in turn. The German government, for all its theoretical support for unification, certainly had not expected the developments of 1989 and certainly had no policy proposals ready that could just be acted upon. Chancellor Kohl, plagued by internal challenges within his party and by health problems, reacted slowly to the changes of the autumn of 1989. It is very likely that he did not at all foresee the changes and the possibilities that would open up, however much he may today portray himself as somebody who saw it all coming. Even when the Berlin Wall was opened in early no November, nobody thought of German unification. But Kohl was quick to seize the initiative thereafter. Three weeks after the opening of the wall, he presented a ten-point plan for the future of the two German states. This plan had been developed in such secrecy that even his own foreign minister only received the text the minute the chancellor started to give, to, uh, to, to give his speech. Simultaneously, I might add, it was faxed to Washington. 
This is indicative of one of the domestic characteristics of German unification, namely an extreme amount of centralization of the decision-making process, which runs quite counter to what you heard from me in the last uh, weeks, uh, and runs quite counter to what we normally know about German politics. Uh, I'll come back to that later. What did Kohl propose in his plan? He spoke of the Germans' right to self-determination and he offered support for the GDR. This financial support, which he said could be of a hitherto unprecedented scale, would be conditional upon fundamental change in the political and economic sphere in the GDR, i.e. the end of the Communist Party's monopoly to power. Kohl even spoke of German unity, but saw that as the end of a process that might take many years and the outcome of which was not at all certain. His more immediate aim were confederative structures between the two states, the precondition for which, however, would be a democratically elected, legitimate government of the GDR. Kohl also stressed that this development could only be achieved if it was to be embedded in the process of European integration, which might be extended to a democratic GDR and other Central and Eastern European countries. Further progress in arms negotiation and the development of new institutions of East-West cooperation would be fundamental to such a process as well. With this plan, the German Chancellor had laid out what appeared to be a viable route for the future and shown a way to operationalize the so far largely abstract desire for the goal of German unification. At the same time, he had succeeded in seizing the political initiative and the leadership in public opinion. This proved to be central for achieving German political goals in the months to come. The new American administration at the time under President Bush, the first, had upon coming to office conducted a lengthy policy review for all areas of foreign policy. One result was, and that was in early 1989, that substantial changes might be imminent in Europe and that they might well result in some movement even in the German question. It was judged that a united Germany, preferably in NATO, was in the United States' strategic interest. <coughs> Consequently, the American side supported the German Chancellor when he seized the initiative. Apart from strategic considerations, personal relations played an important role. President Bush trusted Kohl very much. In the difficult struggles around the issue of the NATO double-track decision about Euro missiles in the early 1980s, Kohl had stood unwavering on the side of the American government. In a way, the political investment he had then made now paid off. The United States supported German initiatives, not least against the opposition of some other European allies, to which I'll come back in a minute. And they put pressure on the Soviet Union when the issue of continued membership of a, uni of a unified Germany in NATO was debated. The Soviet Union, in retrospect, looks like the clear loser. The clear loser of the diplomatic struggles that uh, resulted in German unification. Indeed, the very fact that the Soviet Union broke up in 1991 is not unrelated to the result of these struggles although a multitude of other factors also played a role. 
while Gorbachev had initiated new thinking in the Soviet Union and while he had recognized that a change in the Soviet Union's international policy stance was necessary if his reform goals were to be achieved, he lacked a vision of what precisely it was that he wanted to achieve or, in other words, where precisely he wanted to go. It was a position that he shared with some other actors, notably in Western Europe. But Gorbachev was most vulnerable among them. He had promised reforms and he had to deliver them if he did not want to risk his domestic popularity. The processes of reform that he had triggered spiraled out of control and he needed support from the West, financial support that is. West Germany and the United States were happy to help to some extent but conditional on approval of unification and continued membership of Germany in NATO. Gorbachev might have been able to avoid what many regarded as the worst possible outcome for the Soviet Union, but he did not possess the tactical prowess to, for example, offer speedy unification in return to Germany for Germany leaving NATO, <coughs> a position that might have become very popular quite quickly in Germany had it been offered at an early stage in the development. Finally, let me say a few words about the other West European states. Many of them, as I already indicated, were absolutely not happy about the prospect of a united Germany, a country that had repeatedly caused problem, uh, problems and war in the past and might, it was feared, do so again. Then French President Mitterrand more than once compared the situation that evolved uh, to, to that of 1913, the year before the First World War, and his private reaction to the opening of the Berlin Wall is said to have been that, I quote, these people are tinkering with a world war. While he hoped that the Soviet Union would veto unification, he was upset when Gorbachev agreed to it in principle in the spring of 1990. Mitterrand flew to Moscow in May 1990, expecting Gorbachev to seek his help in resisting German unification. And I quote from his memoirs again. Um, I'd enjoy doing it if I thought he would, but why clash with coal if Gorbachev will, will only drop me three day, days later? I'd be totally isolated. Mitterrand by then had made up his mind to accept the inevitable and rather than offer futile resistance which would threaten to destroy the central achievement of, of French diplomacy after the last, uh, of the last 40 years, namely European integration under French-German leadership, rather than offer futile resistance he decided to extract concessions for further European integration from the German side. The Maastricht process and EMU are one result of that. Then British Prime Minister Thatcher was less flexible and clearly opposed to unification. But she could not convince her American allies of her point of view, and anyway she was on her way out after more than 10 years in office. Many observers have criticized the way the British and French governments conducted their policy in 1989 and 1990. Let me quote the American political scientist William Smyser from Georgetown University who talks of, and I quote, the pointless and petulant negativism of the British and French governments as well of, as of François Mitterrand and Margaret Thatcher themselves. 
Paris and London behaved like little citadels of privilege, desperately afraid that a united Germany would cost them not only their eminence in Europe, but also the claim to the great power status that they had achieved through victory in World War II. The frequently described instances of French and British childishness strike a sadly discordant note, especially as they contrast with the statesmanlike behavior of others, including even the losing Soviets." End of quote. Let me finish now the consideration of the international aspects. Time does not permit me to go into the details, but if you want to do that, I highly recommend the book by Zelikov and Rice, which you again find on the handout. And yes, that Condoleezza Rice is the present American uh, Foreign Secretary. This book offers a detailed account of the complicated negotiations. Both of the authors were insiders on the US National Security Council and intimately involved in the whole process. Let me just conclude by saying that while on the 12th of September 1990, the so-called two plus four states, the two German states and the four World War II allies uh, signed um, uh, the final settlement with respect to Germany, when they did that, they ended 45 years of bipolar confrontation in Europe. The GDR was about to leave the Warsaw Pact and join a West Germany that would remain in NATO. On the 3rd of October, less than 11 months after the Berlin Wall had come down, the GDR ceased to exist and joined a Federal Republic of Germany that had more or less achieved all its goals in the process a diplomatic success of the highest proportions. But how did the domestic political system of the Federal Republic react to the challenges of unification? That's the question I want to focus on now. As you will remember from the lectures in weeks four and five, the German political system is usually characterized by the influence of veto power from various sources, among them federalism, coalition government, and a number of competing centers of power, such as the Federal Constitutional Court or the country's independent central bank, the <coughs> Bundesbank. We saw then that German policymaking is normally not characterized by excessive speed, but rather is a slow, gradual, and protracted affair. How did that system behave when it was faced with the challenge of unification? Well, the short answer is it behaved completely differently. During the process leading up to unification, the German political system was characterized by an unprecedented degree of centralization and by speedy, often secretive decision-making. Wide-ranging decisions were taken very quickly and without the usual encompassing deliberations and consultations. Federalism was practically non-existent and institutions as powerful as the Bundesbank were completely sidelined. Even Parliament was hardly consulted, and when it was, it was rather deferential to the wishes of the government. Clearly, unification was in domestic politics the hour of the executive. Let me pick out some of the most notable aspects. First of all, it's important to say that domestic pressure developed very quickly in the aftermath of the opening of the wall. How did that come about? Well, primarily through the influx of large numbers of East Germans who voted with their feet against the GDR system that they did not trust 
and did not trust even after November 1989. This had consequences for both the GDR and the Federal Republic. The, G the GDR lost some of their most entrepreneurial and active people, people that would have been vital to the reform effort. But here was a classical problem of collective action. While for the GDR as a whole, it would have been preferable if these people had stayed, for each individual of them, um, it was clearly preferable to go west and increase their salary and their living standards far more quickly than would have been possible in a reformed GDR. And many of them doubted that the GDR would reform. For the Federal Republic, the inflow of hundreds of thousands of East Germans who had a legal right to immediate citizenship and social benefits posed enormous problems as well. Housing was only the most pressing and immediate one. East Germans wanted to participate in the wealth of the West that they had so long foregone. One slogan, one slogan in the demonstrations at the time expressed that wish, and I quote, if the Deutschmark comes, we'll stay, if it doesn't, we'll come to it. In German, kommt die D-Mark, bleiben wir, kommt sie nicht, gehen wir zu ihr. As a consequence, the West German government proposed a currency union between the Federal Republic and the GDR in the spring of 1990. This measure was originally designed to keep costs in check, but it proved to be very costly indeed. The implementation of it, especially the choice of the exchange rate, is the reason for many of the economic problems that ensued. For political reasons and ignoring the advice of the Bundesbank and the Council of Economic Advisers, the exchange rate was set at one Deutschmark to one East German mark for a large, large extent of the holdings of currency. This was meant to prove to the East Germans that they were worth no less than their West German brethren, but it amounted to a revaluation of the East German mark of around 400%. Now remember what a revaluation of about 10 to 20 percent um, has done in, uh, in the, to the much more competitive economies in the West um, in the past, and you can see why it was that the East German economy, which was far weaker, collapsed to large extents in the following months and years. Output fell by a staggering 28 percent in 1991 alone. Why did this occur? Well, in essence, the economy paid the price for the politically motivated agenda to accomplish reunification um, as quickly as possible. The one-to-one -one <coughs> conversion rate of the East German currency was followed by a decision to equalize wage rates uh, between similar classifications of workers in the East and West. The reasoning underlying these decisions was clear. The Kohl government wanted and even needed to assure the East Germans that they were not second-class citizens, and their marks and their work was of equal value to those in the West. But unlike West Germany, the Eastern economy was a complete mess. West German wages and conditions were imported, but the efficiency and productivity remained distinctly East German. The last thing that the East needed was a massive increase in costs and its prices, uh, which is what these decisions meant. Unemployment shot up in the months after unification and it remained for a long time at only slightly below 20%. <coughs> Since 
Secondly, the German government was faced with the task of restructuring all, firm, uh, all former state-run firms in the East. Restructuring was run by the Treuhandanstalt, or trustee agency, which we talked about earlier in this series of lectures. It had still been set up under the outgoing communist government and was based in East Berlin. The Treuhand saw its job as privatization of businesses as quickly as possible. But thousands of concerns were declared bankrupt and folded up, increasing the unemployment problem. Others received state support and limped on, facing extremely hostile markets and little help from firms or banks in the West. At the same time as the East German economy was being privatized, private property was being both created and restored. Holders of property that had been confiscated by the communists at the end of the Second World War, or de their descendants, were given until 1992 to lodge claims for its restoration to their ownership. The scale of the legal and administrative task that this represented is hard to imagine, and also the insecurity that it triggered among East Germans. Let me now take you forward to the situation as it is today. After a huge effort and spending a lot of money, um, the estimate is about 1,500 billion euros. 1,500 billion euros that had been transferred from west to the east since unification. There are still enduring divisions uh, within Germany. You can find them both in the economic sphere, if you look at indicators such as unemployment or the economic structure, um, but you can also find them in terms of social indicators if you look at such things as mobility, age structure, or the proportion of foreigners living in an area. To illustrate these points, let me show you uh, some pictures because, as you know, they sometimes say more than a thousand words. Let me start with unemployment. And here you can see, and the figures are from um, a couple of years ago, but um, they haven't really changed much, uh, that the East is still clearly distinct. In the West, average unemployment is in the 7 to 10% category, while in the East, the average is in the 16 to 28% uh, category. So unemployment in the East is still about twice as high as it is in the West, and you can also see that in the East there, are, uh, very, there is very little differentiation. You see hardly any bright spots. If you look at employment, at the employment structure, what you see is that the East is very much characterized by deindustrialization. This is employment in manufacturing, and it's the blue parts that uh, show you a high part of manufacturing and the yellow ones that show you a low one. Um, if you remember the election graph I showed you, uh, and that is on the handout uh, in the lecture, I think, two weeks ago, uh, you will remember that the areas that you see in this graph as being dark and blue are the ones that, are, that uh, tend to vote for the Christian Democrats, and it's the sort of northeast that tends to vote for the Social Democrats. So what we have here is a paradox of uh, industrial areas those in the South and West, abandoning the Social Democrats who are supposed to be um, their political representation and the Social Democrats being strong in precisely those areas of the country which have 
basically given up on manufacturing. Again, you can see that the East clearly is different uh, here from, from the West. If we look at migration inside the country, what you see here is the, the red areas are the ones that lose population and it's the green ones that gain population. You can see that the East continues to lose population and that large parts of the West continue to gain, although there are some rural areas or some other areas that um, lose parts as well. This is in percent 1995 to 2001. And Within the West, you see there is a mixed picture. There are some losses, some gains. But overall, the East as a whole still loses a lot of population. This migration has consequences for the age structure, and you see that in this picture. Uh, here again, it's, it's the dark green ones that have a high proportion of the population that is aged 60 plus. The East becomes an old people's home. That's the sort of short, uh, the short story. Um, it's a, because it's above all the young and the entrepreneurial uh, people who move, and this leads to further atrophy in those areas uh, where economic activity is already weak and declining. Um, so what seems to be emerging here are long-term problem areas, uh, mainly in the East, but not exclusively. You see some uh, in, in the um, eastern part of what used to be West Germany as well. Another long-term problem is, the, um, is in the making, the, what you could call the fertility strike of East German women. It's fascinating how more than 10 years after unification, you can still, still see very precisely uh, where the GDR used to be. Um, there is a clear difference between the East and the West, uh, and it again adds to the long term, it prolongs the problem uh, into the future uh, of um, weak population growth uh, and of an unfortunate age structure. Another big difference uh, is the proportion of foreigners, the percentage of foreigners that live in an area. It is highest in the industrial areas and um, thus clearly lower in the east, which is, as we said, deindustrialized. But you can see again that there is a clear distinction visible along the former East German border. And that is fascinating that this remains in place uh, so long after unification. It's also... Well, this is, uh, this is a, a low proportion. Of, yellow is the low proportion of foreigners, and blue is a high proportion of foreigners. Um, and I think it was the same to the, f let me see, let me go back. Um, here, yellow is the, a low level of fertility and blue is a higher level of fertility. Now, what is interesting about this is that during the 1990s, even though there were hardly any foreigners living in the East, it was still the area where xenophobic feelings uh, often ran high and there were um, um, incidents uh, of, of uh, xenophobic outbreaks. So this is clearly not a consequence of too many foreigners, but in a way of too few foreigners living there, because many people uh, actually have hardly ever met any foreigners. So what you see from the pictures is a very clear distinction that so many years after unification still remains in many economic and social indicators um, concerning uh, East and West Germany. 
Let me now come to the conclusion. Looking back at the process uh, uh, and effects of unification, one has to say that on the surface, unification has changed the political system of the Federal Republic rather little. If we look at the institutions of the state, we have to say that most have remained unaltered. The author of one of the standard textbooks of German politics, Klaus von Beime, when he prepared the first post-unification ed edition, expressed his shock, his astonishment, that he had to change so little of the text. But that's not the whole story. German political and social life has been deeply affected by unification. There is an irony and perhaps an element of tragedy in the fact that the sheer speed and the success of unification have contributed to the new resentments uh, and barriers between East and West. And to some degree, we can see this as, as the price of quick formal unification. Many promises of the early 1990s made by the Kohl government could not be delivered. And in 1998, Kohl had to pay the electoral price for it. But as you know, the government since has also faced huge difficulties. And the jury is still out whether they are able to deliver. But I would say that this should not sour your judgment of just how remarkable the achievement of German unification has been over the last decade. There are many observers who doubt that any other country in Europe could have undertaken the challenge with such a success because in, the spite, in spite of many shortcomings, it is ultimately a success. And in all sorts of ways, economically, sociologically, and with respect to the party system, Unification has transformed politics as normal in the Federal Republic, probably forever. This is still a system that looks for a new balance and a new normality, and one that remains one of the, and that remains one of the reasons why it continues, in my view, to be an interesting and fascinating subject of observation. Well, with that, I want to end and thank you for your attention today and throughout the term. Before I uh, hand out the, um, the feedback questionnaires, let me ask uh, one thing. First is, can I ask for a show of hands of how many people have made use of the podcasting uh, of the lectures? Have any of you downloaded them? Can I sh have a show of hands? Not too many. Are there any who sort of um, plan to do that? Ah. <laughs> okay. So it may w still, still be worth the effort. And um, right. With that, I... Um, well, thank you and um, ask you to distribute the questionnaires. You, uh, if you could just leave them on the table when you go. Thank you.